turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 96. If you please find the 96th Psalm. I preached a few messages in the last few weeks from the book of Psalms. And as I've told you, uh, when these Psalms were originally written, these were written as songs to be sung. So you have some of these that are uh, sad songs, and some of the Psalms are happy Psalms. And in either case, what it does, it reflects the mood of the person at the time that they're writing this particular psalm. Well, Psalm chapter 96, this is a joyous psalm because this uh, was written when David uh, was, was praising the Lord and when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem. And there was a lot of singing and rejoicing and sacrificing when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem. And this is the time, if you remember the story, where David danced before the Ark. You can read about this in First Chronicles chapter 15 and 16. And you may also remember in that story that David's wife, Michael, was very upset at David because she saw him dancing when the Ark was coming. And she thought that that was far beneath the dignity of a king to do that. But what David was doing, he was just giving thanks to God and praising God for uh, what God had done for Israel. So David did not forget to worship. Now tonight, as we study this lesson from the 96th Psalm, I want to talk to you about things that you should bring to church, or better, we might say, what did you forget to bring to church? Because there are some things that we do forget to bring into God's house as we worship. So I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read this psalm. We're going to read the entire 96th Psalm, beginning with verse number 1. David writes, O sing unto the Lord a new song, sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, we are so thankful for the word that you've given us. Lord, help us to look into your word and learn something here about things that we should not forget as we come to church. We just thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's interesting sometimes when you when I'm preaching a message, to look out over the congregation and see the kinds of things that people are doing when the sermon is being preached. We don't have very many children in here. As a matter of fact, I don't think I see any children in here. Some of the young people, that's because Pioneer Club is going on on the other side of the building. But when I was a child, um, we didn't have all these special programs for the kids, and so you had to bring all of the children into the regular church service, and all of us were expected to sit there and be quiet and to hear what was going on. 
But I have to confess to you that there were many times as a child it was very difficult to, be sit, to sit still and be quiet in church. And so it wasn't unusual to see mothers bring uh, little items, maybe a toy or something for a child to do while the service was going on. I remember uh, when our daughter Clarissa was little, she must have been, oh, I, I don't know, maybe four or five years old, that uh, during the invitation time, I got up to, to do the invitation hymn. We usually sat on the first or second row about where Joseph and Abenita are sitting or the second row there. And when I got up to do the invitation, Clarissa took her, her doll and her blanket and when she saw me get up on the platform, she just stepped right out here to the front, laid her blanket down and spread it all out and had a picnic for a doll during the invitation. Well, those kinds of things, you know, get a little bit distracting to you, uh, distracting to the preaching. But uh, some things like that go on while the service is happening. But I've looked out over the congregation and I've seen adults do a lot of things that, that you might not expect. I've seen people get out their checkbooks and balance the checkbook while the service is going on. I've seen lots of women, the ladies that take out a fingernail file in their clippers and give themselves a manicure while the service is going on. I even heard this once about um, a church custodian who had to clean up toenail clippings after the service. I don't even want to think about anybody trying to do that. But some things are very distracting when you're up here preaching. But probably the most annoying thing that we have today that, that really distracting, I think, for everybody is when a cell phone goes off. Most people do not forget to bring their cell phones to church because they forget to turn them off. And I want to give you a little tip about cell phone use. If it rings, we can hear you if you answer it on the other side of the curtain. We can still hear you over there. So just remember that if you would, please. So turn your cell phones off. But there's some things that we shouldn't bring to church, but there are some things that we should not forget to bring to church. One of the things that you ought to bring to church is your Bible. Now, here at Berean Baptist Church, we still preach from the Bible. Now, I know that's a novel concept nowadays, but we still do use the Bible. So it's a good thing to bring your Bible to church. So there's some things that you don't want to bring, but there's some things that you don't want to forget to bring. Well, this evening, we're going to look at some things from this psalm that I think that you ought not to forget about when you're in church. The first one, I would say, that we ought not to forget about is don't forget to sing. David begins this psalm with, Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. And when David writes here a new song, he's not really speaking about a song that's just been composed. He's not talking about that. When he says a new song, he's, he's singing about something new that God has done. And, of course, the new thing that he's thinking about is that the Ark of the Covenant is now coming into Jerusalem. And so he says, sing unto the Lord a new song. Talk about the new things that God is doing among us. And when that Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem, that was the place where, where God makes atonement for the sins of the people or where the high priest would come and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on that Ark of the Covenant, and that would be for the sins of the people. Now, on the Ark of the Covenant, you remember, there is a, a mercy seat on top of that. That's where the cherubim are. And the priest would bring the blood of the sacrifice, and he sprinkled it on top of that mercy seat. And that's what we call, when the priest did that, it's what we call an expiatory sacrifice. And what that actually means, it's a sacrifice to take away the guilt of sin. 
And this is one of the things that Jesus did when he was crucified, of course, is that he took away the guilt of our sin and we're justified in the sight of God. But not only is the sacrifice an expiatory sacrifice, but it's also what we call a propitiatory sacrifice. And what that means is that God has performed an act here whereby he reconciles man to himself. And really, this is the most important part of the atonement. The Jewish sacrifices are typical of what Jesus would do when he came into the world. And Jesus came to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And the primary view of the atonement is that not that we are reconciled to God through a sacrifice, but that God himself has provided a sacrifice whereby he reconciles us to himself. So in that, we could say that the atonement is a new thing Because what Jesus did was similar to what the Jewish priests did. It was similar to their performance of sacrifice, only it had a very distinct difference. And that is that the priest had to offer an animal. He could not offer himself. So what Christ did was a little bit different than the Jewish sacrifices because Jesus, as the Lamb of God, came to sacrifice and offer himself for our sins. And so that makes what Christ did in the atonement a new thing. Hebrews explains this by saying, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, David's song is a remarkable song, and it's no wonder that he says to sing this new song unto the Lord, and he wants the people to join in with him as he sings. And this is one of the things that I really like about going to church. I enjoy the singing that we do in church. Singing is part of your participatory worship in God's house. Now, when I stand up here and I preach the word, this is my expression of what God has done. And so I'm worshiping God even as I preach this sermon. But you have the opportunity to worship God also, and you do that through your singing. And so as you're out there singing songs like, Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Well, that's a song about the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And, of course, there are many, many other songs that we sing, and all of them that point to the sacrifice of Christ are things that we ought not to forget to sing about. And so when you come to church, be a part of that. Join in the singing as we sing to worship the Lord. A second thing that we ought to bring to church or not to forget about in church is don't forget about your salvation. In verse number 2, he says, Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. And what this is, is your personal acknowledgement of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Two weeks ago, you may remember, I preached from the 19th Psalm. And we talked there about how David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. And you may remember that I told you that that that, uh, word for God in that first verse is the most generic name for God that you find in the Bible. And what it is, is sort of an impersonal revelation of God through creation. But as David goes on in that psalm a little later, the name of God changes. When he starts to talk about the command of God and about God's word and how God reveals himself through the word, then he changes the name and he changes it to Lord, 
which in the scriptures and the all capitalization we know means Jehovah God. And Jehovah God is the personal name for God. And so when David writes there, he's changing the idea to a to a an expression of our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible say that Jesus is? He is the divine word. He's the divine logos. Jesus' name actually means Jehovah is salvation. And so following Christ and being obedient to him, as we come to church and we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as Hebrews says, that is an expression of our gratitude for God in our salvation. So we ought not to forget about personal salvation. And I really don't believe that we think clearly enough about this, that what we say and what we do reflects the depths of our gratitude for God. Every time that you come to church and you come to worship him, this is an expression of your personal salvation. You worship God and you show gratitude for what the Lord has done. Well, that would also include the next thing that David tells us about, and that is don't forget to say. In Psalm 96, verse 3, Declare his glory among the heathen, the wonders among all people. Now, this is our active obedience in witnessing for our faith. The gospel glorifies Jesus Christ. Telling people the gospel glorifies the name of God. Now, we find this, it's kind of an unusual thing here, we might think, because we find these kinds of expressions all the way through the Psalms. David says over and over in many different Psalms, declare God to the heathen. Now, we think about that, and we look at the Jewish history before Christ, and what we find is that the Jews did very little proselytization of heathen people. And yet David says, do this, declare God's glory to the heathen. Now, that's part of... I think, of what he's talking about, the new thing in verse number one. This is not something that they're used to. You see, when Jesus came, he came into the world not to die for the sins only of the Jewish people, but he also came to die for the sins of the whole world. And the Jews certainly did not like this universal appeal of the gospel of Christ. They didn't want Gentiles to come under the covenant of grace. And as you study the book of Acts, you'll find out that that the Jewish Christians were very slow about receiving Gentiles into the faith. But this is exactly what God designed to do. He designed to bring all people out of every kindred, every tribe, every nation, and he would allow all people to come under the gospel call. That's why Jesus said right before his ascension, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. A little bit later, the apostle John would write in 1 John chapter 2 verse 2, for he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so here's something that we ought not to forget as we are followers of Jesus Christ. Never get the idea or live under the pretense that the gospel is for me and for mine. The gospel is only for the people of Berean Baptist Church and it's for nobody else. That's against what the Bible has to say. We ought not to forget to say, to declare God's name among those who don't know him. So that's how, in a more magnanimous way, that we begin to glorify Christ by what we say. So think about this very thing. Why was the Bible written? And what does the Bible do? Well, every scripture that you read, and even right here in the Psalms, a thousand years before Christ came, everything that we read in the Bible is to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Every scripture, I don't care what it is, in some way it's going to tie in with what Jesus Christ has done. It's all a part of his story. And so when we forget to say, we forget to tell people about the gospel of Christ, then what we are doing is shutting down the very purpose of why Christ came. And that's to let people know that there is a means of salvation and salvation is in him. And so we ought not ever to forget to say, to declare God's name. Fourthly, don't forget to sway. Don't misunderstand me. Now, I'm not talking about standing there and let's weave back and forth. You, you might want to do that. I don't know. That might spice up our worship a little bit. But when I talk about swaying, I'm really talking about being persuasive with the gospel of Christ. Don't forget to be persuasive with it. Here's what David's doing in the next verses of these Psalms. He's presenting, with, presenting the people with an argument for the true God, for Jehovah God. And so he writes in verse 3, Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Given to the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Sometimes as we think about the gospel and and in our thinking, we believe that it's our responsibility to give the gospel. And of course, we agree to that statement. But we think that in our responsibility, all that we're supposed to do is speak the word, hang it out there, and let anybody take it or leave it as they choose. That doesn't say anything about persuasion. The Bible teaches us that we need to be persuasive with the gospel. Now, we had a question in our Sunday morning forum class a few weeks ago about 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 2. That scripture says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And the question concerned the urgency of the gospel. And some people think, well, here it is, that when God gets ready to save, he'll save people. And so we just sit back and we watch whatever it is that God does. Well, I agree at least to a little bit of extent. I mean, God does his saving in his own good time. We're not going to rush God. I'm not going to try to interfere with God's work. But I also understand that God has given us a means of doing his work. I have no idea who God is going to save and who God won't save. But here in this verse, it tells me that God's own time of salvation may be right now. Today may be the day. I have no idea when Jesus is coming back and you don't either. And so there may be a possibility here that people just don't have time to deal with the gospel of Christ. And so when God says today is the day of salvation, we can't change that message. I wouldn't want to change that message. If God says right now is the time for you to be saved, then right now is the time for you to be saved. And I don't want to say anything differently. This could be the very last day before Jesus comes back. I have no idea who and who is not part of God's elect. As far as I'm concerned, everybody in this world is one of God's elect. And not one of them will ever be saved unless we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And so we need to be persuasive about it. We need to be urgent about it because God's word says that that's what we must do. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I think Paul is talking about terror in two different ways there. First of all, he was writing to Christian people and he just finished explaining to them about the judgment seat of Christ 
And there is an element of fear that ought to be in all of our hearts because of this awesome responsibility that God has given us. We ought to fear God in that way. But I also think that Paul is speaking about lost people in this verse. And we need to fear, warn people to fear the terror of the Lord because there is a hell for anybody who doesn't believe. They must receive Christ as their Savior. And if we weren't to be urgent about it, if we weren't to be persuasive about it, Jesus never would have told us that story about the rich man and Lazarus. He wouldn't have talked about that if there wasn't some need to be persuasive about it. We never would have needed to read things like Jesus spoke about the everlasting fires of hell. We never would have to worry about the book of Revelation, which tells us there is a lake of fire for those who don't believe. He wouldn't tell us all of those things. If all we just needed to do was lay the gospel out there, say, here it is, take it or leave it, Accept it or not accept it, whatever you do is fine. We're going to leave it all up to God. Of course we must leave it up to God, what he does with the, with the result of the gospel. But we are to give an urgent message to people, a persuasive argument that hell is coming for those who don't believe. And so he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But as we persuade people, we also ought not ever to forget that it's the Holy Spirit that uses the word. Our convincing speech, our best arguments will never change the heart of man. The only thing that changes them is the power of of the gospel in the hands of the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that will ever change people. But I understand this as well, that the persuasive argument may be the very thing that God is going to use to bring a particular person to repentance and faith. So I don't want to leave out the persuasive argument just because God's the one who does the saving. That may be the very means by which he uses to bring that person to himself. So we don't forget to to sway people, to be persuasive with with them about the gospel. Then fifthly, don't forget to submit. I want you to look at verse number five again. It says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Do you know what the word idol means in the Hebrew? The word idol actually means no thing. It means non-entity. Or in other words, it means nothing. I know it's not politically correct today for us to say this, but I think this is true nonetheless. The Bible bears it out. Christianity is an exclusive religion. In Christianity, there is no room for any other God. There can't be any other God. And we can't tell people who worship some other God that that's okay, that that's a valid God that you worship, just as long as you worship some God. Christianity absolutely does not allow for that. It's an exclusive religion. And so when the Muslim bows down and worships Allah, do you know what the Bible is saying here? It says that he is worshiping a non-entity. The Muslim is worshiping nothing. That's what the Bible says. There's nothing there. Folks, we don't do anybody any favors by saying, well, you'll be okay as long as you worship some God, as long as you follow some God and you're sincere in your worship, then everything will be fine. And I'll tell you, it is a dastardly admission when someone like the Pope of Rome would tell people that there are other paths to God, there's other ways to get to heaven. As long as you are sincere in what you believe and you worship some kind of God, then it's all right, you're going to go to heaven. I think it's also a dastardly admission for people like the evangelicals, such as Billy Graham would even say that the Jews don't need to believe in Jesus Christ because they can be saved without him as long as they're sincere and follow their religion as they should. 
That's wrong. The only way to come to God is through Jesus Christ. It's an exclusive religion. Now we have this year or next year there's an election coming up. I mentioned a little bit about this this morning. But one of the declared candidates for the Republican nomination is a Mormon. I don't preach politics from the pulpit, but I want to go on record with you now and say, I will not vote for a Mormon. I won't vote for a Mormon. And the reason I won't vote for a Mormon is because that's only one step away from Islam and Buddhism and even atheism. And the reason I say that is because America is heading down a slippery slope when we think that any God is okay just as long as they're a God. No, we have to worship Jehovah God as the Bible reveals him. So I'm not going to vote for anybody who doesn't believe in Jehovah God. Now, there are varying degrees, I guess you might say, of what people understand about God. And I realize there are many people who claim to be Christians and are running for office and and they say they're Christians, but they're not. But I'm sure not going to take a chance on voting on somebody who openly avows that they do not worship the same Jehovah God that I'm worshiping. I'm starting off on the wrong foot to begin with. I don't want to do that. So... What we need to do is we need to stand up for what we believe about these things. And Christians need to go back to those persuasive arguments of Scripture. We need to learn something about the Bible. We ought to know enough about what we believe to refute false doctrine. Now, unfortunately, most Christian people today don't know enough to defend their doctrine. The Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and others, they know more about perverting the gospel of Christ than most Christians know about defending it. We've got to get back to the Word of God. We've got to know who God is. We need to understand who God is. Now, here's the problem with many, many of us. We really don't know who our God is because we're submitting to the wrong God. Now, I'm talking about something a little bit different now because your real God is the one that you submit to. It's whatever it is that you submit to, that's your God. Now, we pretend that we're worshiping Jehovah God but we've given ourselves to other things. As I say, the God that you worship is the one that you are devoted most to. Now, most people today, many even Christian people today, are de- have devoted themselves to their job God. They voted, devoted themselves to making more and more money. So some Christians are, in fact, devoted to their pocketbooks more than they are to the Lord. And their God... And their sub-gods and their angelic beings in, this, in their economic system of religion is GMAC, Ford Motor Credit, places like that. That's the real God. The angel in their system is the bank to which they're in hock to. And that's where they devote all their time. So they've, they've, they've got all this stuff that they've got to pay for. And now people are, in, are, are bowing down to the job God because they've got to keep up the payments on everything. The God that you submit to is the God that you worship. The bank and your job are not any different from any other idol. Those idols have never done anything for you. But what does David say here? He says, God is the one who made the heavens. And the word made here means to take a material and make something new out of it. And that takes us right back to verse number one. As David speaks about the new song. There's something new That Christ has done. Something new he's done with the atonement. And what has Christ done for us? He's taken hell-bound sinners and he's made us something new. We're new creatures in Christ. Sinners become new creatures in Christ. So if he's the one who made you and he made you new, then the creator of the physical man and the creator of also the spiritual man deserves our double submission. 
Now, let's go on here. Number six is don't forget to sacrifice. Verse number seven, give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Well, David certainly did not forget to sacrifice. On the occasion that the ark was brought into Jerusalem, many sacrifices were made. First Chronicles 15, verses 25 and 26 says, So David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went up to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And it came to pass when God helped the Levites that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bullocks and seven rams. There is one thing that I am surely glad of tonight. We don't have to bring a blood sacrifice. The Jews, the Jews in the Old Testament made thousands upon thousands of sacrifices. We'd never think about doing something like that today. Oh, I'm glad I don't have to bring a blood sacrifice. And the reason I don't have to bring one is because Jesus Christ made a once-for-all sacrifice. I don't have to do it, neither do you. Hebrews says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In the 14th verse of the same chapter, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So we don't bring a sacrifice of blood because the true Lamb of God has now been offered for us. Jesus paid it all with his own blood. And when he did that, that stopped all of the other sacrifices that have to be made. Now, unfortunately, and I would say blasphemingly, there are still some people who want to bring a blood sacrifice. Roman Catholicism believes that when they take the Eucharist, that the Wine is turned into the actual blood of Jesus Christ, and the bread is turned into his body. The wafer is turned into his body. And so thousands of times every week, all the world over, Roman Catholicism crucifies Christ all over again. And by doing that, they declare that the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient. That's heresy. I call it blasphemy. It's abhorrent to the Scriptures. It's degrading to the work of Christ to believe such a thing. Now, I've told you many times before that we do not have an altar in our church. Roman Catholicism has an altar. a matter of fact, the idea of having an altar in the church was their origin. They're the ones who put the altar into a church. There's no such thing as an altar in a New Testament Baptist church. I'll tell you that again, and you can remember that. And the reason that we don't have an altar in our church is because there aren't any blood sacrifices to be made. And that's what an altar was for. An altar was to slay the animal, to make the sacrifice, and the cross is the final altar that was ever needed. We don't need one in our churches. So there's no blood sacrifice. But do you know the Bible says that there are still sacrifices to be made? I mean, there's not a blood sacrifice any longer, but there are sacrifices to be made. One of the things the Scripture says that we are to bring a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews that tells us that Christ's sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice also says, bring him a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. I didn't give any blanks on your listening sheet tonight for this, but you might want to pencil that in. Pencil in sacrifice of praise right next to that scripture reference. There are also other sacrifices. There's a sacrifice of possessions. In the next verse, Hebrews says, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God 
is well-pleased. That's a sacrifice of possessions. But then there's yet another sacrifice. There is a sacrifice of person. There's a personal sacrifice. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let me ask you. In the Bible, throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, who was it that made the sacrifices? Who had the responsibility to do that? The priest. The priests were the ones that were designated to make the sacrifices. Now, earlier, I said that Christ, as a high priest, made a different kind of sacrifice. I mean, he he didn't sacrifice an animal. He did something new. He sacrificed himself, so he offered himself for us. But the Bible also tells us that we are to bring sacrifices. And so how is it, then, that we can bring a sacrifice or make a sacrifice to God if we're not an Old Testament priest? Well, there's a reason why we can do that. It's because the Bible tells us that once you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you become a believer priest. Every person who trusts Christ is himself a priest. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a royal priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So you are a believer priest. And so that means then that we don't really need a formal priesthood today. We don't need that. You don't have to go to somebody and ask for absolution of your sins. You don't need a priest for that. You have access to God yourself. That's why we don't have a booth set up over here in the corner of of the church where you come to me or to some other person in the church and confess your sins. The reason we don't do it, because you don't have to, because you're a believer priest in Jesus Christ. And so you have the right to come into the presence of God yourself. And so what you do, because of the sacrifice that Christ has made, you come into the very holy place of God himself. You approach this Ark of the Covenant in heaven, made without hands, and you make the sacrifices of praise, possessions, and and of yourself. So Christ has opened up that way. That one sacrifice that he made forever gave us access into the Holy of Holies where God himself dwells. And we don't have to go through any other person. There is no intermediary. We come to Christ because he's the mediator between God and man. So don't forget that as a priest, you have a duty to sacrifice. Not a sacrifice of blood, but a sacrifice of yourself, of your possessions, and of your praise. And God is worthy of all of it. Now, finally, tonight, number seven, don't forget to surrender. Now, surrender is a very close idea of submission, but we're going to delineate this just a little bit differently by saying that you must surrender to God in service. Now, we notice in the last two verses of the psalm that the Lord here is portrayed as the judge who will come and rule in righteousness. When Christ comes to rule upon this earth, all of the world will be in complete subjection to him. Verse number 11 tells us that creation... The trees, the fields, they'll even rejoice when Christ comes. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that when Christ rules and reigns on this earth, that all of creation will be delivered from the curse. That means even the animals will be delivered from the curse. Isaiah makes it clear about Christ's literal reign upon the earth and what happens then in the 11th chapter. He says, And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. 
The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. Then shall they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. Someday the whole world is going to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. But do you understand something? You have a head start on that. If you are a believer in Christ now, you have a head start on this because you have the ability to come and bow before him right now. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and because you are a believer, you can bow before Christ and honor and worship him right now. Now, the world hasn't yet surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. That hasn't happened yet. The Bible tells us, though, that one day it will happen, and even the devil himself will bow before the Lord. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So because you are a saved person, you start surrendering right now to the Lordship of Christ in service to him. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are bought. And what that means is that now you belong to somebody else. You belong to God. But you ought not to think that belonging to God and service to God is any kind of burden upon you. Because serving God is never a burden. Serving the Lord brings us joy. John says that we show our love to God when we keep God's commandments. And John added something to that. And I think maybe he added that with just a little twinkle in his eye and and a look of joy on his face. He said, but, but, his commandments are not grievous. It's not a bad thing. It's not a hard thing. It's not a disgusting thing or beyond reason for us to surrender ourselves to the Lord because that is a joyous thing for us to do. Now, when we think about coming to church, when you come to church, is it drudgery or is it delight? Thinking about Zella Brisbane again, if you had her attitude, she told me, she says, you know, I get up every day, I spend one hour reading my Bible, and then I spend another hour praying And that's when she says, that's when I pray for you. Now, do you think that if you spent an hour praying, an hour reading the Bible every day, you did that every morning, that when it came time to come to church, you'd say, oh, wow, I have to go to church again. Can't get out of bed. I'm just too tired. I can't get up to go. You think you'd feel like that? Absolutely not. When you have the Spirit of the Lord and you like that, it's not drudgery to go to church. It's a delight. David says in Psalm 100, verse 2, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. In the ancient language, the word gladness actually means gaiety accompanied with laughter. And literally, it means this. I put it on your listening sheet tonight. Literally, serve the Lord with gladness means serve the Lord wide-eyed and with a big grin. Serve the Lord with enthusiasm. Surrender to him in, in, in gladness. No, I don't think that 
too many people would want what I have if what they see on my face is just a scowl all the time. If it looks like my faith is making me miserable, who wants that? Think about this. You know, advertisers, when they advertise a product, and really as a Christian, you know, you are an advertiser for Jesus Christ. You're, you're showing something, and you're showing people what you have. And advertisers never think like this. They never, never think like, well, buy this car, and it's just like having your wisdom teeth pulled. Well, you wouldn't see that in an ad. What you see in an ad is BMW says, BMW, the ultimate driving machine. You don't see BMW, the ultimate torture machine. And that's the way many Christians advertise their Christian life. This is so bad. It's making me so miserable to serve the Lord. You won't feel that way when you come into his presence with singing. When you come before his throne with gladness, you're not going to feel like that. You're going to, it's going to show in your face. So his commandments, the Bible says, are not grievous. So all of you sourpusses, when you come to church, don't forget to come here wide-eyed and with a big grin on your face. When you come in the door out there, put that grin as you come through and say, I'm here to serve God. Praise God for the God that I serve. So have you forgotten some things? These are some good things that you ought not to forget to bring when you come to church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray that every Christian here tonight would just be so glad, so happy, and show it in what we do, the way that we live. Just show people that we are so glad for what Jesus has done for us. May we never have that scowl on our face and be in bad moods and come to church with the wrong attitude. May we come here, Lord, with an attitude of worship so that we don't forget any of the things that I've talked about tonight. Speak to our people tonight, Lord, and help us to rededicate ourselves to you so we'll serve you with gladness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.